everybody, and welcome to the Energy Connection Podcast, brought to you by My BFF Social. This podcast is dedicated to providing thought leadership regarding topics across the energy industry. The views and opinions expressed by the host belong solely to themselves and are not a representation of any other groups or individuals. If you love to dive deep into the world of energy, listen in here. Good day, everyone. Thanks for joining Energy Connection Podcast. Appreciate you taking the time to learn a little bit about the energy world. We have a couple topics today that we're going to talk about, and I'm going to pass it over to Andy. And uh, we do have a guest that he will introduce. Andy, good day. Good day, Phil. Um, And we're joined by Brad Anderson, uh, all the way from Denver, Colorado. So he's uh, dialed in to talk about some of the developments we're seeing right now out there in the, the regulatory world. So, um, Brad, uh, welcome to, to the Energy Connection podcast. How's it going in Colorado right now? Thank you. Thanks for the welcome. Uh, things are good. It's, uh, it's springtime, which means, uh, you know, to use the cliche, all four seasons in a day, potentially. Yep. Well, that you know, that's exciting. It keeps us on our toes. Yeah, you guys have a lot more to do outside, I guess, than than Phil and I do in Kentucky and Pennsylvania. Um, that's definitely probably one of the luxuries of living out there right now, especially. It is. It is, and we're you know we we had a we had a big winter, so um, we're definitely ready to be to be outside at, at least in short sleeves. Absolutely. So, Brad, do you want to introduce yourself, tell our listeners a little bit about what you do uh, for us here at Connect and a little bit about your background, and then we can can get into some of the recent developments? Sure. Uh, I'm World Connect Energy Services Manager of Regulatory Consulting. My job is to take the energy policymaking and regulatory activity that's happening in, in the public sector and apply it to our business. So at, at a basic level, that's knowing what utilities are doing uh, in terms of rates, resource planning, operational matters, and so on, and making sure that our clients are aware of, of what their bills will look like in the future. We, we inform their, their budgeting processes. Um, but it's also leveraging those public sector developments to identify opportunity, both for our clients and for our own internal plans for world domination. Um, (laughs) I've got a background in economics and environmental policy. I live and work outside Boulder, Colorado, as you mentioned, uh, with my wife and our two young children. Um, You will hear those two young children wrestling at some point in this podcast. Perfect. (laughs) Brad, I am. It's uh, a joy. I remember some of the things that you've brought to the table uh, for World Connect Energy Services. And uh, it's a very, very valuable uh, opportunity that we see in front of us. But uh, I was hoping that we could drill into what the listeners are looking for, maybe some of the information you may be able to share regarding the PJM and the Mopar. Maybe you could bring us up to speed on what's going on there. Sure. Sure. So um, let's let's just start from the top, um, or or maybe the bottom in this case, if we're if we're dealing with FERC policy. Um, okay. 
So the MOPR in layman's terms. So first off, uh, the, the acronym MOPR is the minimum offer pricing rule or, or price rule. Um, the rhetoric is that the MOPR is designed to reduce the impact of state subsidized resources in PJM's capacity market. And we already have to, to place an asterisk there. This is, this is our first of the morning and we're only getting started. Um, we're not talking federal subsidies here. We're, FERC insists that federal subsidies are the purview of Congress, so it won't touch them. Um, okay, we'll, we'll give FERC that, but we have to at least remind ourselves of which sources of generation benefit from those federal subsidies. So moving on, state subsidies only. Um, so we have solar and, and mostly onshore wind, but huge plans for offshore wind and some battery storage and demand response and things like that. Um, these all receive direct or indirect support from states through, for instance, their RPS standards. These resources suppress the clearing price of capacity in PJM's forward-looking auctions. And this is our problem. Is this a problem? Yeah, it, it is. Probably. Let's just say that it is for now. It needs to uh, be a little more robust so we can figure out what the prices will be in the future so we can take contracts out longer, correct? You know, it, it's not that. We, we've we got the pricing certainty now. You know, even if prices are suppressed, we have a decent amount of, of certainty, um, certainly three years out, which is the auction timeline. And, and probably more than that as well. It's not about price certainty. The, the argument is that it's about fairness. I mean, re remember that the goal of these auctions is to approximate a true marketplace. And, you know, we, we could host an entire podcast about whether or not FERC is actually able to do that or, or the merits of even attempting to do that in a capacity market, right? Because we know that for all the benefits of a capacity market, capacity markets force over procurement. But again, that's another podcast. For now, it's it's really about fairness. It's really about doing the best that we can to approximate a true marketplace. And one of the tenets of a true marketplace is an, an even playing field, um, rules that apply to all. So, you know, uh, discounting the federal subsidies that we're not touching here. FERC has an argument when they say that state subsidies suppress what would otherwise be the, the clearing price of these capacity auctions. And again, I, I really want to stress here, we're just talking capacity. Yeah, that definitely brings it home. I, I get it. And understanding that the rules need to apply to all. I've seen, I read so much about how everybody's trying to take a position to benefit themselves, it seems. Of course. And, and, you know, that right there, Phil, if that doesn't approximate a marketplace, I don't know what does, right? Right. Brad, do you have, um, a, do you have a sense of exactly how e uneven the playing field is uh, from state to state? I mean, I, I assume there's some states where there's no subsidies and some states where there, there's pretty heavy subsidies. So what does that landscape look like? That, yeah, that's a great question. And you, and you, you bring up a great point that, again, <clears throat> supports where FERC is coming from, 
Um, you know, we, we've got differences state to state in terms of how those subsidies work, whether or not subsidies even exist. Uh, and then even, you know, region to region, zone to zone within the PJM, there are dramatic differences, right? So to answer your question, yeah, there are differences. Yeah, they're huge. Um, and one of the provisions of this MOPR rule, one of the things that they're trying to do there is capture capture all subsidies, so direct and indirect. Whether we're talking about direct payments to generators or if we're talking about, say, a push toward development in order to satisfy a state RPS goal, where possibly there aren't direct payments being made to generators, but were it not for an RPS, an aggressive RPS, these projects probably wouldn't be happening. So one of the things FERC is trying to do is encapsulate the, the entirety of the, the potential subsidizing effect on the marketplace. For our audience, RPS, you've used that uh, acronym quite often. Would you just uh, briefly bring that to life, what RPS is meaning and the relationship of how it works there? Of course. Yeah, I, I apologize. So there are actually a, a couple different terms that, that get at what is essentially the same idea. RPS is a renewable portfolio standard. Uh, and there are, there are some di different acronyms out there, but basically what that means is the state legislature has set some goal uh, for generation and or procurement and, and ultimately utility sales of a certain percentage of renewables within their overall consumption mix. Um, so most states that have an RPS are are looking at a relatively lofty goal um, mid-century. Um, the most recent push has been to bring that timeline down to possibly 2040, 2035, even 2030. Um, and we're, of course, we're seeing sort of those progressive outlier states really leading that charge. Uh, California, New York, Hawaii, places like that. Um, but when we say RPS, we're just generally talking about a state requirement to have some percentage of their overall mix uh, being accounted for by renewables. So okay. we can live a little longer. <laughs> that, that's right. That's, that's the idea anyway. Yeah. Um, so this, this MOPR, this minimum offer price rule, what it's doing is it's setting an administratively determined price floor that these state subsidized resources cannot bid below in PJM's forward-looking capacity auctions. So the, the immediate question obviously is, well, what is that price floor, right? Um, how do we know whether or not these resources are, are going to clear? Um, if we jump ahead just a bit, PJM submitted their compliance filing to FERC's December 2019 MOPR order. Uh, they did this in May. And a compliance filing is just like it sounds. It, it lays out how PJM intends to comply with FERC's 
very broad and occasionally vague Moper order. So basically, FERC gets to come up with a, an overarching policy, and then they actually put it to PJM to figure out how they're going to implement that policy. So that's that's what the compliance filing does. So this May compliance filing, that was everyone's first real look at how the MOPR was going to be implemented and crucially, what pricing could look like moving forward. So the, the filing provides some, uh, you could call it illustrative pricing. These are examples um, that give us an idea of where various resources will have to bid in. And it, it won't shock you to learn that most of these state subsidized resources won't clear auction. So we've got some examples here for you, for those keeping score at home. Um, the clearing price in PJM's 2017 capacity auction was $76 a megawatt day. Uh, they nearly doubled that in 2018's auction. We haven't seen one since. Um, and that's another, that's another big issue. Um, capacity auctions have been delayed several years now due to, uh, due to this MOPR issue. Um, PJM's compliance filing suggests that we'll see solar PV bidding in between $175 and $367 a megawatt day. So right there, neither clear the, the 2018 auction. Battery storage and onshore wind both bid in at a little over $1,000 a megawatt day, while offshore wind bids at over $3,000. Now, again, these are illustrative, these are examples, um, and they're calculated using estimated system averages, which to Andy's point, these will vary dramatically by region. So these numbers are definitely not definitive, but still you see the vast delta between say storage and wind and historic clearing prices. On nuclear, of course, we've got winners and losers as well. Uh, this is interesting. Some plants in Illinois and Jersey that have received state zero carbon subsidies, they will be able to bid under the price floor uh, because the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, these zero carbon subsidies are a-okay, they're, they're good to go. So FERC can't touch those. As a reminder, um, some of Exelon's Illinois plants haven't cleared recent auction. So that's sort of an interesting wrinkle. Um, other plants like First Energy's Davis Bessie in Ohio, um, they probably will not clear auction based on this example pricing. Now here, that's that's our second asterisk of the day. Uh, First Energy, Davis Bessie in Ohio. Um, we could possibly circle back for some wholesome cynicism on uh, House Bill 6. First Energy's recent share buybacks and why we will all have a personal lobbyist in the near future. Um, for now, let's let's move on, or maybe I'll stop for for uh, questions. Brad, I've got a, I've got a question, and you know I don't know how much detail you can go into on this, or is even appropriate on this podcast, but you know, you're mentioning the, that wide disparity in what these generation assets would be bidding into the capacity market at. What what goes into that? If if you're operating a power plant and you're deciding, you know, what you want to bid into the capacity market, how, how are you landing on that number? Is it just simply your operating costs for an entire year divided by 365? 
um, how, how exactly does that work? You know, that's probably more granular than we want to get today, Andy. Sure. Um, you know, mostly because it's a, it's, it's actually a pretty formulaic process. Um, and basically moving forward, this MOPR is, is going to further entrench what was already an existing mechanism. Um, but basically we have a, one set of calculations for, you know, existing legacy facilities. And then we've got another calculation for, uh, you know, future would be capacity. Okay. Um, so, you know, one of the, well, we, sh we should note here that one of the key provisions of the MOPR is that for the most part, um, legacy resources that have already cleared auction, the MOPR won't apply. Um, now, there's an exception, there's an exception for nuclear there that doesn't apply to nuclear. Um, but, you know, if you're a legacy uh, if you're one of the original solar facilities, for instance, um, and you've been clearing auction for years now, you're good. Nothing, nothing changes for you in terms of your bidding price. Um, so I should have noted at the top that this MOPR applies to sources that have yet to bid. These are new resources. Understood. And just, you know, for our, for our listeners, um, if you haven't listened to our previous episode where we do a deep, we start at the top, but do a deeper dive into exactly what capacity markets are and how the PJM capacity market works. That's probably a good primer uh, for, for this episode. Uh, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that. If, if some of the stuff that we're talking about right now doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, you know, where does, where does all this leave us? Where does the Mopers, price floor leave us? Does this mean that nothing renewable or nuclear clears full stop? Well, no, of course, it's not that simple. Um, bidders can apply for individual unit exemptions. So if a bidder can prove their competitiveness without subsidy, then now this is, this is ironic. This is pretty funny, actually. If you can prove that you don't need a subsidy, you both get the subsidy and you get to bid in at whatever price you can prove you're competitive at. So that's sort of a, a comical, um, maybe perverse outcome of the way this, this rule has been arranged. So we certainly expect to see bidders of all flavors doing backflips in an attempt to sort of weasel out from underneath this MOPR rule. Um, and certainly some will be able to. Uh, we, we definitely expect that. So th there's that, um, the uh, individual unit exemption. We also have, um, we also have states and their utilities which can elect the FRR, the fixed resource requirement. Now, this is a big deal, and this has, to, this has to be scary for FERC, at least on some level, if a state decides that it wants to exercise its FRR, what that means is it's basically taking control of its own capacity requirements. So they're still held to resource adequacy requirements, um, 
but they are basically pulling their share from the PJM and self-managing that capacity. Um, now, we know that uh, several states are taking a look at this. Uh, Maryland is investigating. Um, as early as next week, we will see Illinois uh, investigating doing the same, which which they've actually been they've been going down the FRR road for some time, given their issues with with Exelon's nuclear facilities. So the legislature actually has a provision within their Clean Energy Jobs Act, which would require the state to pull out of the PJM capacity market and self-manage that capacity, um, it, at least in the northern part of the state in, in Exelon territory. So it, it's conceivable that we have some scenario wherein a state or two ends up pulling out um, and self-managing their capacity. And obviously that is, that is not good for the PJM. Um, and that's, that's probably not what FERC had intended. Now, why, you know, why would a state do this? This is, this is expensive. Um, it probably requires legislation. If it requires legislation, it's, it probably will take a year or two, right? These things don't happen quickly. So we certainly aren't looking at states jumping out of the PJM capacity anytime soon. Um, but you could argue that it's going to be really, really difficult for states to reconcile their increasingly aggressive environmental goals with with this MOPA ruling. Um, so that's that's definitely at the top of the list of issues that observers are watching here as we see how this all shakes out. If it, with the the changes that you're talking about, or the potential what. In your view, what could be the downstream issues uh, with all that? Well, worst case scenario, the capacity market collapses, um, which, which again is ironic because, you know, the the whole point behind the Moper was to avoid some sort of damage or or even collapse to the capacity market by maintaining some semblance of a a level playing field, but. You know, if if the PJM loses, say, let's say Maryland and Illinois are gone, um, you know, we, we've heard similar whisperings in other states. If we look at, for instance, what Virginia just did in their legislative session where they passed sweeping, sweeping environmental legislation, um, you know, their their offshore wind plans alone, if they move forward, at the moment, again, it's really hard to see how they reconcile their offshore wind plans with this MOPA rule. So Virginia may have to look at, at exiting as well. So all of a sudden, you know, you start losing your biggest states. What what sort of valuable capacity market do you do you maintain? Let me just say, Brad, I'm, I'm well impressed with uh, where we're heading. I mean. I think this is a little deeper than what our audience is about, but I've learned more today than I have in the six years working in the market. So I, <laughs> I mean, if other, honestly, if other people will just take a time to listen to this, I think 
it, it's going to enlighten people about how it's run. And then yeah, it, absolutely. it'll give a consumer a better understanding. It's more than a price when we're talking to them. I mean, it's bringing all this information to, to a head to get a number that he's satisfied with. I mean, there's a lot going on in the marketplace. I didn't realize, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm in the shadows of first energy all the time and all the crap that they're pulling and, you know, the bailout, the, the buybacks, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. And yeah. then everybody retire with 30 million plus pensions. Just yeah. unbelievable. Yep. Yeah. And that's, you know, Phil, well, first off, thank you. That that's flattering to hear. That's, that's great. Um, but you know, the, the first energy house bill six deal, um, that's, that's fodder for its own podcast. I mean, there, there is just so much there. Um, and you know, to be blunt, it's, it's difficult not to be cynical about that process. Um, how it went down, what it means for the future, um, you know, what it means for competent, holistic policymaking. You know, I mean, the larger energy media does a, a pretty good job. Um, you know, like all media, it is subject to bias, right? Um, you know, fortunately, that, that bias is usually pretty easy to identify. Um, but in terms of sources, you know, I would see say that uh, S&P Global Platts and, and their family of outlets, they, they're probably the gold standard. Um, you know, maybe that maybe there's better or more in-depth analysis out there. Um, but those folks, they, they cover it all. Um, they're as fast, if not faster than anyone else out there. So they're, they're at least providing the greatest volume of credible coverage. Um, and then there are all sorts of other you outlets. To, you have to subscribe to S and P, right? You do. So there's a fee to learn. To, to be educated on that. And, you know, those, those folks are great. They, uh, their analysts um, are incredibly responsive. You know, if, if you identify a couple of questions you have, or, or maybe even see something in their reporting that, that doesn't quite square with your understanding, um, they do not hesitate to, to engage in a dialogue with you. And um, they're, they're fantastic. I, this is a, a plug for S and P apparently. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Uh, yeah, most most of the questions that you have, if you try to get other uh, agencies involved, governmental, uh, you never get an answer back. So that that's refreshing to uh, to hear. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously there are you know there are a number of of excellent outlets out there, and you know like you would do with say your. Um, maybe your political media, you, you sort of do your best to let it all wash over you like a, like a lukewarm bath. Um, and you know, you sort of, uh, find your way to, to some ultimate conclusions, trying to be as, as mindful of the bias as you can, you know, that's, that's the best you can do. Yeah. I've, and politically it, I didn't understand just five years ago how much politics played into the energy business. It's it's a sad state of affairs from the origination of uh, deregulation and how everybody else is 
picked it apart and moved it around to be a shadow of what it once was with subsidies and you know, looking out for themselves, looking out for number one. You know, Phil, respectfully, I'm actually going to push back on that. And, you know, I, I think that that is, you know, I, I come from an economic background. So, you know, economists sort of maybe foolishly pride themselves on their uh, their objectivity and their their apolitical nature. But, you know, you could pretty easily argue that deregulation itself was a was a political process. Right. I mean, there's there's one side of the aisle that absolutely did not want to see deregulation go down. And, you know, they they probably have a couple decent arguments that support their their fears. Um, so, you know, that that said, we're we're all for deregulation um, and, and certainly re-regulation. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the process has always been inherently political. You know, with with as much money as at stake, politics are going to find their way in. Absolutely. Well, I I understand the correction. Uh, with uh, with that, I definitely uh, it's given a lot of people a lot of employment in the deregulated uh, state. So yeah, I at all for that. But I would like to see more open up. Obviously, as a. a vested personally in it in our type of employment a- absolutely phil and, and you know that um you know it's possible that the current pandemic maybe slows progress there a bit um as it's slowing progress everywhere but we are are happy to report that we are seeing a, a new groundswell that's that's moving in that direction um you know in the last couple of years we've seen developments in California, Arizona, Virginia, Florida. Now, you know, of course, some of those movements have failed. Um, most recently in, in Florida and in, in Virginia was sort of a mixed bag. Um, but at least we are seeing a resurgence of interest. Um, we're seeing a, an entirely new generation of consumers and advocates and thinkers um, re-examining the deregulation and, and re-regulation issues. Um, you know, speaking of generation, we're seeing an entirely new generation mix that is being uh, wrapped up in, in would-be re-regulation. So it's definitely an exciting time. Um, we're definitely seeing, like I said, a, a resurgence there. Um, and that's something that we're, we're watching very closely. Well, it... Um is absolutely changing the stack that's for sure with uh as coal used to be such a a player in this industry yeah yeah you know it's been it's been very good uh dialogue for me getting involved you know my last job i was in the oil business i managed lubricants and i actually won one of world connect's largest customers salcoa and i managed lubricants set up manufacturing distribution throughout the uh, Americas forum. So I've been in a different part of the energy business before. This is a little different. That's for sure. That's, that's funny, Phil. So coming, coming full circle. um, One of my longest term projects with, with connect has been um, working with Arconic and now Howmet. 
with their regulatory monitoring in Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania. Um, I have to imagine it somewhere that's a, a direct offshoot of your initial contact with Alcoa. Fred, uh, great information. Um, what, what's next? Uh, is there anything in the works in the immediate future that we need to know about? Yeah, yeah, Andy. So this is all, um, you know, this is all, everything we've discussed is is all well and good. But, you know, at this point, this is all prognostication and, and conjecture. Um, we don't really know what things look like until PJM actually conducts its its next forward-looking capacity auction. So we are looking at about uh, six, six and a half months after FERC approves PJM's compliance filing. So I, I mentioned that that they issued their or they filed their compliance filing in March of 2020. FERC now has to rule on it. Um, that's not necessarily going to be an easy or quick process. That could happen this summer. If we call it this summer, optimistically, then we are looking at late 2020, even early 2021, for the first PJM capacity market auction under this this new revised MOPR. Um, so our, the first auction is for 2022-2023. And because we're a couple years behind at this point, the schedule moving forward is rapid. Um, so six months after that first auction is held, they're going to go ahead and hold the auction for 23-24. Six months after that, 24-25. Six months after that, 25-26. So, you know, within the, sport, within the span of, uh, of two or so years after this first auction is held, we're going to have some pretty good visibility into pricing through 2026. Well, they're knocking them out, huh? They are. They are. It's pretty amazing that they can't do it for four years. Now they can do it every six months. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Well, that's good information, and we'll look forward to uh, where those markets go. And we will be uh, working with our end users to uh, bring them the best value that we can. And hopefully they'll understand why the prices are going to be up, and down and back around. Brent, with everything going on with the coronavirus um, and obviously a lot of uncertainty across a lot of landscapes for consumers, uh, what are you seeing from the utility level as far as their attempts to recover costs? Um, any new developments there? Yeah, this is a this is a great question. This is an emerging issue or, or set of issues that utility customers, especially commercial and industrials, should be watching closely, and I'm I'm sure they already are. Um, so most regulated utilities in in the country um, operate under these days operate under um, some sort of uh, alternative rate making, performance-based rate making, what have you. And generally there are provisions within that operational and, and cost recovery structure that are gonna allow for some sort of recovery of lost revenues due to weather-related events um, and, and other, other external or even force majeure events that are going to reduce their sales through through no fault or planning error of their own. 
most states um, most states don't have provisions for coronavirus and and lost utility sales, um, but a lot of the states that that do extend some sort of alternative rate making to their utilities are going to find ways to allow their utilities to recover these lost revenues due to um, reduced load and, and certainly shifting load, right? Um, because while manufacturing and production may be way down, uh, you know, we, we're going to see reductions in um, segments of healthcare, higher education, um, areas like that. Um, residential consumption is, is certainly going to be increasing as, as everyone is sheltering in place. Um, nevertheless, utilities are definitely going to see lost revenues. So, so how do they recover that? What does that look like? Well, we're, we're just starting to see, we've got a couple weeks now of filings um, from utilities at the state commission level that at least begin the process. Um, some of these filings have been, been pretty vague. Uh, when I say vague, I mean utilities and their state regulators are basically agreeing to do one of a couple things. So one, they are tracking their lost revenues and the, the cost shifting that is occurring as utilities um, lose load or, um, or maybe have been prohibited from residential power shutoffs, for instance, uh, or, or natural gas for that matter. Um, so basically, utilities have been granted the ability to track all of these costs in their various forms in um, utilities are being allowed to track these costs uh, in accounts that will be settled at a later date. So I would say at this point, the majority of states and their utilities and their regulators are at least at this, at this stage. Um, we're tracking costs, we'll figure it out later. Okay, so so most people are in that position at the moment. Um, we've we've seen some interesting developments in a, a few particular states where utilities are banding together and going before the, the commission as a united front. Um, that alone is is maybe sort of a scary prospect. Whenever the utilities decide that they can agree on something and and go before the commission, um, that should raise some eyebrows. Uh, I know that we're seeing that in Indiana, where they're trying to develop uh, sort of a um, an across-the-board plan for utility cost recovery. Um, elsewhere, we are seeing customers themselves going to the commission to request some sort of um, some sort of action on the utilities. So, in the case of North Carolina, we're actually seeing large industrial customers going to the regulator and saying, "Hey." How about how about maybe some uh, some demand charge relief? Um, you know, we, we saw it didn't really get anywhere, but we, we saw similar in Ohio um, where large industrial groups who, you know, may be shuttered altogether. Um, perhaps they've laid off or furloughed their employees and they're not operating at all or others who maybe are at um, dramatically reduced production and they're only operating a couple hours a month. Um, those folks, depending on the structure under their utility, those folks may be paying their demand charges uh, business as usual. Um, so obviously that that hits them pretty hard. 
So we're starting to see those folks come together and go before regulators asking for some sort of remedy or relief there. Um, you know, that they, they aren't asking for uh, demand charge forgiveness necessarily. Again, it would be a, uh, a scenario where they are, utilities are tracking these costs and then settling them at a later date. Yeah, I've got a, a good buddy that works for the local utility here in Louisville in a regulatory capacity. And he was saying that they're also struggling with, you know, states and uh, local governments mandating you can't shut somebody's power off right now for not paying their bill, which is, you know, very logical and probably good policy. Right. But also, you know, how long does that last? Uh, how much does that end up costing the utility in the long run? And how are those costs going to be recovered? So you think about the immediate impact is from that industrial side um, where the the loss of load is is a hit right away. But then the, the, the residential side, which is picking up to some degree, um, you've got just with general economic strife, people not able to pay their power or gas bills. And that, I guess that'll pile onto the top, right? It, it goes right to the top. You're right. And that is, that's the, the number one chief concern of regulators is looking after the interests of these residential ratepayers who they see as voters. And, and that's what they are, right? Um, you know, corporations obviously wield tons of influence, um, but, you know, residential ratepayers vote. So, protecting the interests of that residential ratepayer is is at the top of the list for state regulators absolutely um in terms of in terms of cost recovery we still don't know a whole lot about how these various costs are going to be recovered and and over what time frames um we can make a couple safe assumptions and generalizations though right i mean there are no free lunches we're we're all going to pay for this um, residentials, industrials, everyone, uh, the fights going forward are going to be, you know, over what time frames, uh, with or without interest, you know, that's, that's actually a, a pretty interesting one there. Um, you know, it's quite possible that utilities are able to recover these lost revenues and these, these other costs in such a way that they could actually potentially turn a profit. So that's that's sort of an interesting wrinkle that we'll have to watch develop. And that's about all we know so far. You know, um, part of what I do is run uh, energy programs for residential for our associations. And, you know, we've been, I've been working with the suppliers over the last, you know, four months trying to develop a couple small plans that we could bring additional value uh, a lot of third-party supply, you got to pay your bill in full. They were looking at different programs that they could help bring back people affected by this on a slower, you know, an extra $25 a month till that bill is paid. So uh, I'm seeing that from the ground up. That's that's interesting to hear, Phil. Um, yeah, you know, in, in deregulated markets, obviously, um, some of these pain points are – they, they exist, but the paradigm is, is flipped on its head a bit. So that's interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep going at it. Um, I think we've uh, grabbed a lot of time and we got a whole lot of capacity of uh, information here. And thanks, Brad. I appreciate the time you've spent, the education you've given me personally, 
and hopefully it, it has helped our listeners. Uh, we're going to be back shortly to uh, talk to you with some other ideas that we have. So I hope you can stand by and be on call for one of our next podcasts. Andy, any last words? No, just Brad, really appreciate the information. I got to say, um, you know, you, as far as taking dry and very complicated information and turning it around, putting it in relatable layman's terms uh, that they can be digested by somebody that's not swimming in this stuff every day. Um, I think, I think that was top notch and really appreciate your time this morning. Hey, thanks fellas. This I'm happy to do it. This was fun. I, I can't wait for the next one. Well, you were a big part of it today. So thank you, Brad. Thanks everyone. Good day. Thanks for listening, everybody.